The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Holly Richardson. And Holly was instrumental in passing some of the incredible laws in Utah that um, allow for, I say we're like the Silicon Valley of birth because we are so innovative here in Utah. And I'm I'm really excited to hear the entire story. Great. Happy to be here. (laughs) Oh, I'm so thrilled. A little bit starstruck because Holly's kind of amazing. (laughs) So first of all, as an introduction, I just wanted to catch everybody up. So we are filming. We are filming. We are recording in Utah, obviously. So these laws don't apply to other states, but we can talk about what's been done here and how other states could follow. There are four types of midwives. So get out your fingers and we're going to count through the (laughs) The first kind is a direct entry midwife or a traditional midwife. And these women have whatever training they deem acceptable. So they can be a, have an apprentice or they can just, their grandma was a midwife and they grew up delivering babies with grandma. So this is, they just enter the field because this is what they want to do. And these, these women only, these midwives only work in home births. Right. Yeah. Then we have certified professional midwives, and these are midwives who have done their training through uh, a training body like the NARM, the North American Registry of Midwives, and they've passed a test based on hands-on skills, and they they can apply for licensure in the state of Utah, but they don't have to be licensed. That's correct. So these these midwives can do all home births. Some of them work in birth centers mm-hmm. and actually late traditional midwives could technically have a birth center too. Yeah, they can. So they can perform because they are unlicensed in the state of Utah and the state of Utah does not require licensure. They can do things like VBACs and twin births and, but they do not carry any drugs. They're not. They're, they're, Except for oxygen. They can carry oxygen. Yep. Luckily oxygen is not a drug. <laughs> Yeah. And then there's licensed direct entry midwives. So LDEM is the credential. And those have been licensed in Utah. They can be trained in in multiple ways, apprenticeships, self-study and formal classes. And they don't have to have a required nursing background, although a lot of them do. Now, because they're licensed, they get to carry Pitocin in the case of hemorrhage, and they can take certifications to be able to prescribe medication. They can't prescribe, but they can administer. So oh, administer. They can oh, right. administer no certain medications, Got including it. lidocaine for suturing if a mom needs stitches or an IV potentially during labor. But they, yeah, they have to have an agreement with a licensed medical professional that oh, that has prescriptive privileges, but the midwives themselves don't have prescriptive okay. privileges. Thank you for that clarification. Perfect. Oh, and these, these licensed LDEMs, they can work in birth centers and homes. Yep. And then we have certified nurse midwives. So most of the time when people are talking about midwives in the hospital, well, actually all the time, they're talking about hospital midwives, they're CNMs, certified nurse midwives, and they do have um, an academic background and they have full prescriptive privileges. They can prescribe medicine and um, they can work in the hospital or actually they can, they can work in home Mm -hmm. as well. Home home and birth center. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So that's the background. So, 
Go ahead and get us started. How did this all... Great. So Utah uh, has a really long and rich history with midwives. So pioneer midwives back in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, when the LDS Mormon pioneers came into the valley, it was it was actually considered a church assignment or a calling. And so the midwives would be, I mean, in the 1800s, moms were delivering babies with midwives and at home, right? They weren't really going into the hospital to have right. babies. They didn't, that didn't really exist. But what happened in Utah is that you have this long history of midwives. And in fact, the very first state senator in the nation was Dr. Martha Hughes Cannon in Utah. And she was a physician, trained as a physician, but she came back and trained midwives herself here. And and so we have this long and rich history. But in the year 2000, um, a midwife was arrested for practicing medicine without a license. And I would say generally the midwifery community in Utah had been largely unaware of the legal situation. We had had passed down through, you know, word of mouth that we were probably legal. Uh, what we found out with that arrest is we were definitely not legal in the state oh, of Utah. Oh, so midwives were just practicing, yeah. just thinking I must be legal yeah, because that, nobody's- that I must be legal because there was a line in the Utah code that said parents can choose to deliver wherever they wish. But that did not protect the midwives. Oh, so I see. the midwives were thinking that it did, it did not. It protected the parents. And so when this midwife was arrested and charged with medicine, um, practicing medicine without a license, it's a third degree felony. And as we dove deeper into the actual code, what we found out was anybody who does any diagnosing, uh, if I tell you that you're pregnant, if I tell you your baby sounds fine when I listen to the baby's heartbeat, um, that's diagnosing, right? Oh, wow. And if I start to treat, if I tell you, oh, I think you have a urinary tract infection, here's how you treat it, then I'm treating. So I'm diagnosing and I'm treating. Those are all third degree felonies, or they were right oh, at the time. You can't really practice midwifery without You cannot, <laughs> right? I mean, the whole, so the whole practice from beginning to end, uh, it turns out that it was illegal. And so there, there were a group of midwives that said, hey, we, we want to be legal. <laughs> you know, we don't want to risk going to jail to practice yeah. our profession. So we got started on that effort and it was uh, controversial. Uh, it was controversial within the midwifery community. There are midwives who are like, nothing really bad is happening so far. It was just one person. Maybe she's a bad actor. So if we just keep our heads down, it's all going to be fine. But there's an adage I've come to learn uh, in politics is you may not take an interest in politics, but it will take an interest in you. Mm -hmm. And I think with the laws as they were prior to 2005, Anybody who got a bee in their bonnet about midwives practicing could have used that law to come pursue any midwife in the state of Utah, uh, not the certified nurse midwives, but anybody outside of that. Mm -hmm. So, so what we did is we said, okay, we're going to research. Um, there were a lot of states at the time who were had either just passed legislation to legalize midwifery or they were in the same ballpark of trying to get stuff going. And I remember talking to somebody um, nationally and they said, you know, you had a plan on three to five years and we're like, oh no, not us. We'll get it done in a year. <laughs> they were right. It took oh, us five years. <laughs> five years. <laughs> um, yeah. So we, it, it was actually uh, four calendar years, but five legislative sessions before we could get it done. And, and we had to learn everything from 
how a law is passed in Utah, how to write a law, how to lobby, and and nobody ever paid anything, and so it was citizen advocacy, but it's basically lobbying, right? We mm-hmm. had to learn how to not get emotional when people called us baby killers. We had to oh we had to just be persistent, right? And and Utah has a six week legislative session, and when it's over, it's over for the next year. Yeah. Right? They don't get anything done. Right. Well, there's interim meetings. And so you can meet with and talk to people, but there's no voting. There's no lawmaking really that happens during that interim session and or that interim period. And so if we would get to the end of the session and our bill had died, we had to wait another year. <laughs> right. And and it was sometimes so depressing, but but we just kept working and we never gave up. And um, in the legislative session of 2005, we started off that year with, in fact, a bill had been written during the interim. It had a really low number, which means it was one of the first bills to be written and to be published and publicly available. And our bill did not pass until 9 p.m. on the last day of the legislative session. Oh, or it would have been six years. Yep. <laughs> or it would have been another year. And in, in the wow. Senate, so it passed the House with a comfortable margin and, and we had a House sponsor. So it started in the House. And by the time it got over to the Senate, um, the Senate in Utah has 29 members and you need 15 to pass. And our bill passed 15 to 14. Oh. Oh, you so could not get any closer. It was controversial all the way to <laughs> yeah, the end. Yeah, all the way to the end. Oh my goodness. And, and then there was lobbying from, to the governor to get him to veto it. And he did not. He signed the bill into law. And so uh, midwives have been legal in the state of Utah since 2005. Awesome. So legal in Utah means that a woman can choose to birth anywhere she wants with whoever she wants. Yeah. It does mean that. And it's always been that way for the parents, but it means that a midwife can practice no matter what her background or her training is. Now, what are the protections? I mean, just because you can assist a woman in birth doesn't mean that you're protected from any mistakes. So any kind of criminal negligence, right? So if there, for example, is somebody who either misrepresents that they are licensed when they're not, or they're taking high risk births because the law does specify that it's normal pregnant women. Normal pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a a mom going into labor at 30 weeks, which is 10 weeks before their due date, that's not a normal pregnant woman. No, nope. right? nope, that is high risk that needs to be transferred. Right, exactly. And Wouldn't some people say that twins or a VBAC so, is high risk? Some people do. Yeah, some people do. And our legislation actually specifies, we had to go back and revisit um, in 2008 and create some rules. And so we do have that, but we have VBACs that are allowable for licensed midwives and the direct entry midwives who don't license still feel like they fall under that umbrella. But we have first and second VBACs that are authorized. Now, if a if a direct entry midwife who's not licensed decides to take on a higher risk mom and things go poorly, she does risk criminal charges against her. And that has happened in this state. So we have had midwives who've been arrested and charged with criminal negligence and even manslaughter. Wow. So in other states um, where home birth midwifery is illegal, I mean, a woman can always accidentally have a home birth and car birth, but the person who attends her is not supposed to be there. The problem with that is women will still give birth at home, but they kind of go undercover. Sure. So home birth never really died out. I mean, it did, it did really decrease during the, maybe the seventies and the early eighties. But then there started to be a revival and I've, I've been a midwife for more than 20 years now. And, and I was, 
I, I started as, as there was starting to be a resurgence, right? And people were saying, hey, look, we've gone through the worst days where people were being arrested at their homes. Um, and now it's up to you guys to help steer it into the future. I remember that from one of my first midwifery conferences years ago. But uh, yeah, women will always, there will always be women who are choosing to have home births. Some are having them unattended. Some are having them where the midwife is saying, you know, she's the doula or she's the sister or, you know, she's a relative, those types of things. We used to have transports where the midwives did not feel like they could go into the hospital. And so they would either send the moms in or they would take them to the ER and say, you know, I was, I was just there to be labor support. And, you know, here we are, I mean, without saying I'm the yeah. midwife and this is what's really what, going on. What did on. you call that before we started? Dump and run, dump, dump and, run. and run. So they would take them to the ER Which is and terrible leave them. because then the, the ER doctors don't have any medical right. background. And, and then this. you don't have the background, right? Yeah. And you can't say, okay, well, this is what I know is going on. And, um, and I actually had a transport last year, uh, for a mom who she was having her 11th baby, which was great, but the baby presented breach at the last minute. And she's like, I don't want to try a breach vaginal birth, but it was her 11th baby and she was eight centimeters. And so I called the hospital ahead of time Mm -hmm. and I said, we're on our way. This is the situation. They had everything set up, dual set up. So they had a delivery tray if she had chosen to go. Uh, have a vaginal birth or to have a C-section. They were both set up. They were ready. We walked right in and she's like, I don't want a vaginal birth. I want to have a C-section. She got it. And I mean, in minutes, the baby was out and- And there was no shame. And no, no, there wasn't. In fact, you they, broke your they thanked me. They thanked me for calling, for yeah. giving them a heads up. And they said, you know, that allowed us to have everything ready and not be surprised instead of saying, you know, good luck. I hope everything goes well, right? And, and not every midwife would do that. Midwives would still go in and say, well, I'm the midwife. And there's still, I mean, there's still some animosity with the medical community. A little bit, but community. I've seen it. It's changed incredible, incredible yeah. in the last 10 years. Yeah. I mean, when we first started, there was a little bit of the yeah. dump and run yeah. type of thing. But now the last couple of transfers I've attended, yeah. it's gone so smoothly. Yeah, and I think I think one of the reasons for that is because as we ha- as midwives have been able to practice more openly, then and the transfers have gone You're more openly, then you can come in and you can say, look, this is what I'm seeing and this is why we're here. And they respect that you have some kind of knowledge that you know what you're talking about instead of saying, oh, well, this poor client never had any prenatal care and didn't have anything in labor. It's like, no, like she's had eight months of prenatal care and I was with her in labor the whole time. Yeah. Right? And this is her chart. Yeah. So, so that, I, I think that, um, experience over time has really helped, um, the relationships between the yeah. midwives and the medical community. And there's a lot of, um, positive relationships between direct entry midwives and licensed direct entry midwives and, and the certified nurse midwives, right? So we work together well with the CNMs and family practice doctors and OBs as well. So I think that's been a really positive change is there's a lot more collegiality and uh, willingness to work together. Yeah. The culture has been, Mm -hmm. yeah. So do you think um, we still have a problem with midwives practicing out of scope? Yeah, we do. And, you know, I don't know that that's ever really going to change. Licensing doesn't really change that. But there are some who take clients that they probably shouldn't take. You know, I mean, I just think that that the clients need to be aware, right? That not every midwife is the same. Not every midwife's practice is the same. I well, think- let's say that again. Not every midwife yeah. is the same. Yeah. <laughs> just because all midwives are legal in Utah doesn't yeah. mean that, that they not all, all midwives the are same. trained the mm-hmm. same. Not all midwives practice the same. And, and I think a good question for a client to ask would be under what circumstances would you transfer me? 
you know, mm, that's a good or question. my baby. Because if somebody tells you, I'll, I'll never, like I can always make a home birth work, that's probably that's not a midwife that's safe probably. for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, because birth is safe. I think it's as safe as life gets, but that doesn't mean that it's a hundred percent safe right. all the time for mm-hmm. every mom. And, and so having somebody who can say, well, look under these circumstances, this is what I'm looking for prenatally. This is what I'm looking for in labor. Um, if a midwife tells you she's never had to transport, she's either practicing outside of her scope or she's just a brand new midwife and hasn't seen enough births yet. Mm-hmm. Right. Because eventually it's going to, you're going to have to, because that's just the way it works. Yeah. So um, what are sta- other states fears do you think in legalizing lay midwives? Well, I su- I'm assuming that it's going to be the same as, as it was in Utah. Right. And so we, when we would yeah, testify, what were some of the opposition. Yeah. Points? So the opposition came, uh, we, we had opposition from within the midwifery community, which was really sad to me, but, but we had people who said, uh, if you're a true midwife, you are not going to go after licensure, right? A, a very anti-government uh, Wait, perspective. Wait, what? Really? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Interesting. So we would have them lobbying against us. And then we had the medical community lobbying against us. And the medical community was just like, you're just flat out not safe. Right. And, and the, the, the other group, they're kind of like, it's selling out to get. Yeah. And they would call us medwives and a, medwives. Yeah. You know, <laughs> because we want to be able to use Pitocin to stop a hemorrhage and not only rely on herbs. Um, our herbs can be great. And sometimes they don't work. Mm-hmm. And sometimes Pitocin doesn't even work. Right. But it at least can get you to the hospital. But um, we so we had we were kind of fighting a battle on both fronts. Right. It felt like. But but uh, the medical community, I mean, there was just no room at all for the people who would come to the hill for any discussion that a home birth could possibly be safe. And and they just didn't care about how many studies there were. And there were lots. <laughs> right. And now there's even more showing how safe um, midwives and midwifery care is. And um they would show up in committee meeting with stories about how they just saved a mom from, you know, bleeding to death from this stupid midwife at home. And, or, and it's like, well, how convenient that every single time there's a committee meeting, you just saved a mom. Like statistically, <laughs> that's so improbable. Right. But, but we couldn't, we couldn't like roll our well, eyes. The other thing too, is if it's, if it's illegal, then you're only transporting in the dire, 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 dire the very worst of the worst. And then, right? it, and then yeah. it's just a disaster, but the yeah. transfers I've all yeah. attended, they were not yeah. disasters. If you feel like you can go in earlier, right. Mm-hmm. Because you're going to have a decent Sometimes reception. They just yep. want an epidural yep. and they want to be done. And yep. some of them, yeah. the, the mid, so I, yep. I've been to several transfers for just a, a hemorrhage that was making yep. the midwife a little uncomfortable. Yep. So she transferred, before it became yeah. life-threatening. And, pri- and prior mm-hmm. to legalization, I think that that most midwives were staying home longer, right? Yeah. Because the, it the negative a more pushback. Yeah. Situation. I, I myself had a baby at home 25 years ago and I had a tear that was more than the midwife wanted to stitch up. Mm-hmm. And so I transport, we transported in and I mean, we took some time, went in and the doctor was um, not kind and said, well, if you're into natural birth, are you into natural sewing too? And I'm like, no, I'm <laughs> like, it's been three hours. Really? I would like you to numb me. Thank you. Right. And he, I mean, it was oh that kind goodness. of, you know, how stupid are you? I'm like, well, I actually am a registered nurse and, you know, trained this way and this way. And they just were oh, huffy. But, but we also had, I remember, um, a lobbyist for the hospitals who came into a committee meeting and said, if the state allows this to happen, you better start funding body bags because the body count's going to rise. 
And I'm like, everybody's going to die. <laughs> moms and babies. And, and he oh. was literally saying babies are going to be buried in backyards. And I'm like, oh my Whoa, gosh, it's really? so offensive. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And what's wild is, as you get involved in politics, the person who gets really emotional first loses. Right. And so by that point we had learned, you cannot just go, oh, what are you talking about? Right. And we just had to say, you know, um, the data doesn't back that up and here's what we've done. And, you know, mm -hmm. here's the normal transport rate. It's eight to 10%. And the most common reason is long, slow labor and mom needs some pain relief, maybe some Pitocin. Right. And they're just like, Oh my gosh. But it was a consistent effort. And like any, like really like any effort, I think where you're going to try to make change, you have to win hearts and minds. You yeah, cannot. That's going to be my next question is I'm steeped yeah. in this, in this culture. And I, and yeah. I interact with midwives and moms all the time. I don't know how I would even begin to educate and change the hearts and minds of legislators. Yeah. So that's one thing we had to learn. And, and it, that's what gave me my love for politics actually in the political process is I how ironic loved <laughs> interacting with people. I, I thought they were some kind of a special class, these elected officials. Yeah. And I found out that they're not. Most oh, of them okay. are just totally normal people, very Wait, approachable. <laughs> and, yeah. I'm and just kidding. Just, just, oh, just I thought they were so them. scary. Right. And, and, you know, somehow so a class of above. But, did you have to do? So, so it was everything from like, I took chocolate chip cookies to people's houses. We took people to breakfast. We and just talked to them. Yeah. And we and talked to them. to them. And so the first thing, well, the first thing that you have to do is you have to create and find a point of connection. Where do you connect? Where are things that you can relate to? What's similar, you know, mm -hmm. with you. And, um, one is you, n you never lie to a legislator because they will find out, right? You never lie. But each legislator has something that's a little bit different that might be important to him, you know, fundamentally him or her, but mostly him. Um, fundamentally, people care about reelection, right? And so one of the things that we ended up doing towards the end was a campaign by home birth parents. And what we started doing is they would send postcards to their legislator saying, hey, another new constituent was born in your district. Um, and they'd be like, mm -hmm. oh, I didn't think I had any home birth families in my district, right? And so it was starting to make that oh, visible to them. Yeah. The Christmas before the 2005 session when we when it passed, we um, we did this campaign called uh, Ho 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 Home Birth, right? And we sent Christmas postcards, <laughs> and and we had taken every every home birth parent that we could find who would give us permission to use their name and where they were located, and as a you know little group of midwife activists, we sent all these these postcards out by the hundreds. And some, some people were like, please don't send me anymore. I'll vote for your bill. Just don't send me any more <laughs> postcards. <laughs> right. But it made an impact. And so it was, it was trying to get people to remember, trying to get them to understand. And, and we had, we had people who like, they, there was no show called, you know, call the midwife. There was no uh, pop culture, anything that had any kind of normalization of midwifery, and princesses so, weren't giving nothing, right? Birth no, princesses home. weren't giving birth at home or in, or in the hospital with doulas and midwives, right? And and so so we would get questions like I literally had questions like, um, do you do C sections on the kitchen table? <laughs> Oh yeah. Like, Let's go there for no. a minute. <laughs> right. And, but there was a book that had come out called midwives and you know, she had done that. There was a bad <gasps> ice storm. The midwife uh, delivered the baby C-section on the kitchen table and the mom died. Right. So it's this fictional book, but it was, that was kind of in, oh, the, no. in the national narrative at the time. Right. 
And we'd have to say with a straight face, no, we don't do C-sections on the straight kitchen face. table. Oh, man. And, and, then, and then I remember one legislator who said, okay, so for like pain relief, do you take them into the hospital, get an epidural, and then take them back home? I'm like, nope, they do it without pain relief. And it was so foreign to them, they couldn't even wrap their heads around wow. that some people would not have an epidural, right? They didn't mm-hmm. understand how that would work. So we had to we had to do this process of education and and I remember a lot of legislators wanted to know who's your opposition and what are they saying and so we we would have to know their arguments as well and we would tell them mm-hmm. right this is what they say this is why they say it right and they would say well what's your response well we have this study and this study and this study that says it's safe and you know and and you know we're we're looking at evidence based care mm-hmm. and. This is why we think it's a good idea. This is why. And what is some of the hard cold evidence uh, about home home birth versus or birth center birth versus hospitals? Like you said, the C section rate was eight to ten percent. No, I said the, the transfer rate. The transfer rate. So, wow, no transfer rate. So that's about eight to ten percent of the moms will end up yeah. transferring to the hospital for some reason or another. Yeah. And um, a lot of times it's not an emergency. It's just most times it's not an emergency. Yeah. Yeah. Most times in, yeah, in labor, it's not an emergency. And I've had uh, over 20 years, I've had a couple of um, ambulance transports for babies, but they were babies that um, needed additional care than I could give at home. Right. And, and all midwives are trained in newborn resuscitation, neonatal resuscitation. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and people will ask things like, what do you do if there's a cord around the baby's neck? Well, that actually happens about 25% of the time. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it's not a problem, but when it is a problem, the midwives are trained on how to resuscitate a baby. And again, you know, a midwife who says she's never needed to resuscitate a baby hasn't been to very many births. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it right? quite it a just few happens. times. Mm-hmm. It happens, and sometimes even just for an extra support. Yeah, the baby's struggling a little bit. Yeah. Home. So, so, so we just did a process of education, and it and it was we spent a lot of time taking people out to lunch one on one just to say, hey, you know, not during the legislative session because it's so fast and furious then, but during the the interim months just to say, hey, this is who we are. This is what we're doing. Um, this is why we're doing it. This is where we see the problem, right? And we had, I remember by the time we were done, there were some people we couldn't convert and that's mm-hmm. okay. But the ones that I appreciated the most were the ones who would say flat out, you know, I, I can't support you on this issue, but I really appreciate your willingness to be honest. I really appreciate your willingness to keep working on this issue. And and I became really good friends with some legislators who never voted for that issue, but Later, we had, when I, I actually became a legislator in 2011, so it was six years later, I was a midterm vacancy appointment, which just means somebody wasn't able to finish his term, and so I was able to step in. And some of those same people who had voted against that one bill, we were able to be colleagues and on the same side of many other bills, right? And mm. and so it's it's kind of this idea of you don't ever burn your bridges yeah. because you're going to need that bridge. Well, if you I don't, see that mirror in the midwifery yeah. world, the midwives that are becoming friends with, I mean, there are some... <laughs> There are some OBs and CNMs in the hospital. They're like, "Don't refer me anymore," yeah, <laughs> because they've gotten word in the in the yeah. they've they've built Within bridges, the midwifery community, and yeah. Now they're the most popular, yeah. And you know, I mean, I think there's I think there's lots of good that can come from that, and mm-hmm. this idea of building bridges, and and whether it's whether it's a transport because you're a midwife and you're transporting to the hospital and you have a bridge or a connection there, or it's this legislative bridge, they may not vote for you that time, but they might the next year or the next year or the next year after that. And so, when we had midwifery uh, legislation come around specifically on birth centers, it was. Uh, 
a much higher percentage of yes votes. And they're just like, yep, this is great. So let's go there. And I was, that's a great segue. So, <laughs> so the midwifery and, and I just want to, as an aside, I, I, I love the ripple effect. I love to yeah. see what happens with the ripple effect. And I just think, okay, the things that I'm struggling for right now are because of the work of midwives and, and legislators in the, in the nineties and the eighties and the seventies. <laughs> I mean, the fact that um, I get to attend births the way I do is because of a midwife in California in the seventies, yeah. you know, like, it's just, I love to see how we yep. improve. And, and when we cooperate with each other, we could really make the world yeah. better. So I'm, I'm just excited to see what our children do and our grandchildren do surrounding birth yeah. and to, for them to go, cause I call them the granny midwives yeah. in the eighties, <laughs> the ones that were willing to go to jail for what they right? believed in. And yeah. I don't have to go to jail. So now I get to yeah. work more openly. And then yep. what do our daughters and our granddaughters do? Yep. So one thing that built was the first thing was the midwife legislation. Yep. And then there was a birth center legislation. Yeah, that's right. And I'm a little more fuzzy on that just because I think there's so many misconceptions in the community still about what's legal. So yeah. before Go it, ahead. Was, it was, you couldn't, you could have a one room birth center. So, so here's the problem with birth the law. Center. Yeah, here's the problem with the way it existed. So the law that we passed, uh, that we got passed legalizing midwives also said that they could deliver anywhere, right? So even the hospital, if you could get hospital privileges, which is not going to happen okay, in yeah. Utah, but in mm -hmm. some states, I understand it does happen. But but what that, what that left the door open to was births and births. But what happened is there was almost nothing in the law that said anything about birth centers, but there were rules. And so the rules were put in place by a group of people called the health facilities committee. And these people met and they created the rules. And what they did was they made them so onerous that there was nobody, including a physician who could actually meet the rules. So not even a licensed not even a licensed physician could or have a, a CNM birth room and could office. have a legal. Well, they could, but they couldn't have a legal birth center. They could have a birthing room in their office, and that's where you got the one room exception, the one room exemption. Mm. And and so what they were what they were doing is, if you had a one room birth center, you you could operate without a license. And they had put that in place specifically for physicians because there were some physicians who were delivering in their offices, like upstairs, they'd have a birthing room. Um, wow. That was back in the days of... I was going to say, that's before my time. I don't know anybody that does that now. Yeah, I don't know anybody who does it now either. But back then there were people who did. And I, what was, I can't remember. It was, it had to do with the HMO that they had and the patients, if they chose the doctor's birth center, they'd get like a kickback of $500 or something. Anyway, there was something. Oh, right? let's make our choices about healthcare. Basically. Well, a lot of people do make choices based on the finances, but, but, but anyway, they, they had created this rule so that the doctors could have this one room exemption. Well, the midwives figured out that you could have this one room exemption. So some of the first midwives using birth centers had people who were coming um, and complaining saying, well, they're running a birth center. And, and then this department would come back and say, well, a one room is legal, mm -hmm. right? It's actually exempt. And so what happened is we tried to change through the health facilities committee. We tried to change the rules. Well, but too, uh, also people were not just having one room. They were having one one room and then having a waiting room that happened to have a bed in it. 
and then another storage room that happened to have a bed in it. Most of the places that I saw didn't do that. They would literally be across the hall. So you may have, you, you had a door opening into one and a door opening into another. And but the problem is you can't, you can't, wow. It just created so many problems because women didn't come in in line, just like the movies where the bad guys only sure. punch one at a time. They don't go into labor one at a time. So you right. would end up with a, a midwife and a flourishing practice having two or three moms in labor at the same time. Right. And so, that, that that did become problematic, mm-hmm. right? And and if you were skirting things, you ran the risk of you know being arrested, being shut down, right? right? So the first avenue, the first line of defense was to go to this health facilities committee and say, we, we've got to change the rules. Like right? what were some of the rules? Well, like air systems. Yes. And, I mean- yes. So they, they basically said you have to create a mini hospital. So you have to have ventilation systems like this. You have to have wiring like this. You have to have an isolation room. You have to, I mean, and it was, it was these architectural codes that make sense for a hospital, but they don't make sense for a standalone for, for something tiny, e- even, even standalone surgical centers, right? Which are still different because they, they deal with anesthetic gases and, and things mm. that a birth center was never going to deal with right so you don't have these big osha issues where you're looking at oh my gosh we have all these dangerous gases we have to vent to the outside okay i was wondering what that was all about i was like for fresh air yeah (laughs) no and it's and it's what what's so weird i mean it was even things like well you have to have the countertops have to be this high and we're like what like it just it doesn't make sense right so so midwives tried and and I can't remember how many years, but it was multiple years, a multiple year process. I want to say like five years that that midwives kept going back to the committee and the committee's like, basically, no, we're not going to change it and you can't make us. And so, so we did it legislatively. And our answer was, yes, <laughs> okay. we can. So how did you do it legislatively? So we just, I have uh, a number of friends in the legislature and I approached one of them. Um, so these, this committee is being really frustrating. Yeah. Won't. And this legislator did her own investigation and she was, she was party to several meetings and including one where she was there and recording with their knowledge. And they're basically like, we're never going to do this. We're never going to mm. allow them to have a birth center. And she's like, okay, now I can see where the roadblock is. And so she ran legislation and it passed easily and, so what does the new legislation say about so the this? So the new legislation says that you can be licensed as a birth center, and I think it's up to four rooms. Um, there are certain requirements. Okay, so before there was nothing. There was no, there Except was technically licensure room. available, but it was impossible to impossible. meet the standards. Okay, yeah, right. So it didn't exist. So there was a one room exception. exemption. Yep. Yeah, exemption. Um, or the hospital. There was no in between. Or no in between. And there had even been a freestanding birth center up in um, Salt Lake that w- had been kind of an arm of the University of Utah, but it was off by itself. It was grandfathered in. Okay, I wondered about that one. It yeah. was grandfathered in, but when it went out of business, then there was zero, right? Nobody. And there was okay. e- even they couldn't have met the standard once they changed the rules, right? Even though it had been there for years and it was a, uh, I used to work there um, as a nurse, actually. It was a three room. Maybe birth center, four room. I can't remember. Maybe four room. But anyway, so yes, there are standards for these birth centers, but you do not have to be a licensed practitioner to own one or to run one or to work in one. That's up to each birth center to decide. And so we do have direct entry midwives without licenses who have birth centers. We have licensed direct entry midwives. We have certified nurse midwives. Can you have an unlicensed midwife have a licensed birth center? Yeah. So, so the licensing for the birth centers is separate not, from who's not dependent. Yep, yeah, it's not dependent on very the cool. And the licensing now is what do they look for in a birth center? 
Uh, that's a good question. Um, I can't remember actually all the details. I'd have to look them up, but basically they're looking for, you know, like uh, basic egress, basic. Yeah. Is there a place for people to park? Is there uh, Okay. So it's more like a business licensure now. Yep. Much more like that. And in fact, what they, uh, a number of birth centers popped up in like commercial areas, right? And you, you don't need anything super special. And some mm-hmm. of them are in older homes. Some mm-hmm. of them are in um, office buildings. I, I mean, I've seen a lovely, some lovely birth centers just in the middle of like a strip mall, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. there's just a lot of possibility. And I think that's the thing that's really great is that it allows possibility and flexibility both for the moms and for the practitioners. And and so there there aren't really the constraints on how it's set up. One of the things that the that the committee had put in place that made it impossible was that they had said a birth center has to have a signed written transfer agreement with a hospital. Oh, that's really hard to get. No hospital in Utah no. will sign one. Not one. Not a single one. Not for a doctor. Not for a nurse midwife. No, because wife. you're basically saying whatever happens at home or at the birth center, I'll be liable for it. And that's well, and that's, I mean, I, I that was one of the arguments that people made, but that's not actually true, right? So you're responsible. For example, if you're the ER receiving doc, you're not responsible for anything that happens before they get to your ER, right? No, it, whether it's a car accident, but... whether it's a labor, you're not responsible. And and they wanted to make that clear. And I think that is pretty clear, but they will not sign a transfer agreement, right? They will not mm-hmm. say, I will receive all your patients, right? Although we do, I do know of a few doctors that kind of have an informal, yeah. you know, like, Hey, I'll be on call, you oh, know, yeah. whatever you need. Yeah. And, and that's totally fine. But what, but what we found, right, is the hospital systems do not want to sign something with somebody who would be their direct competitor. So birth in a hospital is a big money-making venture. It's a huge percentage of their income. And so birth centers, even though we're birth centers don't do very many births percentage wise, it still cuts into revenue. Right. And so <laughs> Wait, but they're not going to they... sign permission for their competition to exist. Uh, okay. But if a mom gives birth in a hospital, then doesn't the hospital get to bill for that birth? Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yep. So that they still get paid, but if the mom is transported, right. But mm. a birth center would be competition. Huh. So anyway, so that wow. law got fixed also. So, yeah. Yeah. Happy with that. So now we have, so I just wanted to um, talk about some other states. I've just yeah. been doing some research because um, I thought I lived in, well, I do live in princess state here, <laughs> I feel like a princess. And I just had no idea what was out there. I just thought Utah was kind of the norm. Turns out it's not norm. Yep. <laughs> in New Jersey, for example, it's against the law for a midwife to attend her home birth on a VBAC. They mm-hmm. just have a no VBACs. And a VBAC is a vaginal birth after a cesarean. And in Iowa and South Carolina, only certified nurse midwives can attend a home birth, which I heard from a CNM here in Utah that that's kind of problematic because once you start attending home birth, your liability insurance changes because I guess they they insure the midwives for 18 years or something after a birth because anything that happens to that child, if it's deemed a birth-related injury, they can go after the midwife. And so... Um, she said once she stepped out of the hospital and started doing home births, she can never go back to the hospital. That's here in Utah. You lose your pr- hospital privileges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no hospital will give you privileges yep. again. A midwife in the in California can only work under the supervision of a doctor. And um, in Texas, it's against the law for a midwife to apply pressure to the mother's abdomen while she's in labor. I mean, some of these laws, I'm like... There must have been a case. There must have been a problem, right? (laughs) (laughs) Who applies pressure to a mother's abdomen while she's in labor? Well, and and Texas actually has pretty good laws. They were were an early state to legalize 
midwifery and midwives. Home birth is illegal. Home birth midwives are legal in Texas. Yeah, right? and they have been for a long time, and New Mexico as well. So for to have a rule like that, you know, there had to be right, something exactly. somewhere. <laughs> and Alabama, until this year, it was illegal for midwives to practice at all. Yeah, and they're talking about a home birth midwives. CNMs are right. illegal in every state. Right, but twenty three states in the country have no licensing laws, which means yeah. technically, midwives, home birth midwives, are practicing undercover. We called it a legal, right? Saying <laughs> that know. there's no law yeah. that legalizes you. And we thought in Utah that meant there was no law that prohibited us, but we were incorrect. Right. But there are other states where the Practice of Medicine Act is not quite as broad as Utah's was. Utah's is very, very broad. Um, and they capture a lot of things. But yeah, I mean, that makes it really, it makes it uncomfortable for midwives. It can make it uncomfortable for their clients. There, I mean, there are states, did you say it was Alabama? Alabama, but also Hawaii and Delaware let uh, regulate their CNM so harshly that it's almost impossible. So while it is legal yeah. to hire a CNM, it's pretty much impossible to find one in those states because of the... Yeah, because they make it so tight, right? Yeah. So, so in Utah, there was an attempt to do that to... Um, make the the regulations so strict that basically nobody would qualify to be a home birth candidate, right? And and we actually had to fight that legislatively. But but yeah, the idea was, you know, we're just going to put parameters on this and keep it safe. But it was, if you've ever had a big baby, if you've ever had a little baby, if you're before 38 weeks, if you're after 40 weeks, right? And we're like, your window is so narrow that mm-hmm. you're making, I mean, almost nobody would qualify. If you've ever had more than one miscarriage, I mean, the, the rules, the proposed rules were so outrageous. That's like, uh, yeah, no, we can't do that. So that was part of the trying to. That was, um, that was actually a surprise bill in 2007 and we killed it that year. And then in 2008, we came back and did some stuff and it's like, okay, here are the rules that we'll be comfortable with. And we, we didn't put the rules into statute, but what we did is say, we're going to have a rulemaking committee. And it was composed of direct entry midwives, a certified nurse midwife, and two p- physicians. So it was a six-member committee. We met for a year and kind of hammered out the rules. So you basically had the law passed in 2005, mm-hmm. but that back in 2008, you came and cleaned it up a little bit yeah. and clarified some things. Yeah. And that's where we got the rules about this is how you can have a formula, a personal formulary if you're a licensed midwife and you can use additional medications besides what was specified in the law. And, you know, this is how you set it up and you can deliver mm-hmm. from 37 to 42 weeks. Um, if you hit the 42 week mark, you're supposed to transfer. I mean, we, I mean, we just went through some of those yeah. things, right? And I've heard all those rules, but yep. I didn't understand the pro the, yeah. how the they process. created. Yeah. yeah. We basically we hammered no, those them out. Midwives <laughs> know. And it's so exciting because the midwives do know the rules. Yeah. I, I early, early in my career, like way back in 2011, <laughs> I did meet some midwives that were just practicing out of scope and didn't really mm-hmm. understand or anything. But now when I talk to midwives, they all they all know exactly the rules and some of them practice out of scope, but they know it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's become the norm, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing. I think, I think the one great. other change that we've had since 2008 was um, a law that passed that said, basically, uh, whether you're licensed or not licensed, you have to get informed consent from your clients in writing, right? So there were... Ooh, so informed consent means that the mom is told exactly... The options surrounding the choices. And and specifically the education level and training and licensing status of the midwife. So oh, oh okay. So she's required now. She to is tell required. Her. She's and uh, she's she's supposed yeah. to say, Oh, I just I attended my first birth yesterday and I call myself a midwife. She has to in writing let the mom know yeah. in 
writing the client know yeah. in writing. Yeah. And the client has to sign it. Right. And, and oh. say that they understand that there's additional, um, there's additional stuff for VBACs. Mm-hmm. Uh, at, at least if you're a licensed direct entry midwife in Utah, you have an additional consent form specifically for VBAC. So basically, I mean, I think that it's common sense that the, the client who's choosing should know, right. They should know what your training is. They mm-hmm. should know, what your transport rate is. They should know if you're licensed or not licensed. There are people who maybe don't say that they're licensed, but they don't disabuse people of that notion if they think they are. And, and you just have different requirements, right? Well, a lot of times moms just don't even know what questions to I ask. Know. And so, yeah. and even if they get the answer, they don't know what that means. So I'm hoping that this will kind yeah. of so, so that's been a few it. years, but but look, in, in other states, I mean, there are some states where it's still just as acrimonious. I mean, they have done years of trying to get laws passed and they just cannot get it moved, right? They just can't get mm-hmm. it moved. And some people are, it, it's, it just depends on the make, makeup of the legislature, right? Yeah. And how much you can get people to um, listen. I know in Utah, we actually have a birth tourism industry. Women will come from other states to give birth. We, <laughs> we have some neighbors, especially that are, that are not friendly to water birth and, mm. and home birth. And so oh, yeah. we'll have people come down to, to Utah and just finish yeah. gestating. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I, I love water birth. I think it's fantastic. And one of the things that I think is interesting and maybe... Maybe I'm overstating the influence of home birth, but oh, I've no, seen... No. I've seen hospitals start to do a lot with water birth and and it's not really water birth. It's like water labor. Oh, but there is one hospital in Utah that will allow an actual birth in the, in the water. That's amazing. And, Right, but I think that's driven. Any more referrals? (laughs) I think that's driven by the home birth community, Mm -hmm. right? And and the birth center community, right? But the out of hospital birth community, and because that that was never a case before, right? And you could maybe get somebody to let you labor in the shower, but you had to get out when you were like in active labor. I mean, it's like, well, why would you even get in? I know, (laughs) had to kind of pretend. Oh, I'm not in labor. I'm not pushing. Yeah. So, so I think that's really great, right? I mean, I think there's some spillover into what we're seeing. Um, as options available to moms in the hospital. And as moms get more informed about what their options are, then they can drive the change as well, right? Mm-hmm. So they can go in and they can say, you know what, I, I don't want an episiotomy. I don't want you to cut me. Um, and I know that that's possible, right? And I worked as a nurse in labor and delivery many, many years ago, but one of the places I worked was up in Washington State. And I remember the doctors up there, they stopped doing episiotomies because the moms demanded it. Yeah. And the moms said to the doctor, if you cut me, I will sue you. And they're like, okay, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Right. Even though they were quote un- old school and trained yeah. to you do that. You got to use the right language and explain. Yeah. yeah I've, t- I, I've told mom or I've, I've said if 10,000 moms next year go to the local hospital and said, if you, if you uh, cut the cord too soon, that's right. an amputation of an organ. And I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyway, if, if enough women just came and agitated for whatever they wanted, it changes. Yeah, yeah it can. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. It can. I mean, I mean, there's always going to be the pushback to keep mom safe. Yeah, and there is. But one of the things I guess that's interesting is when I when I went up to Washington State, this has been more than 30 years. So it's a long time ago. But when we worked up there, the epidural rate in Utah was already over 90%. And in Washington State at the hospital where I chose to work as a nurse, it was under 30%. And Whoa. Yeah. 
and they did not want it going higher. And what they did was they provided their nursing staff were uh, one-on-one with the mom in active labor. And so she was basically took on the doula role wow. of active labor support. Yeah. And then, uh, oh my and, and gosh. And one of the things that was so great is they did not have that nurse. She didn't even set up the room. That was the supervisor's job. She right. was there for she that was mom. There. And so she could see yep. any little blip in yep. the radar of- yep. And we were all cross-trained, right? So once that mom hit active labor, she had one nurse. From then all the way through postpartum baby, there was not even a newborn nursery that was even available until 9 p.m. And it was breastfeeding on demand, which sounds like, well, yeah, of course. But I worked in the hospital in Utah 30 years ago, and it was not breastfeeding on demand. It was, you know, we'll feed your baby a bottle in the nursery at night um, if you... Wow. Unless you specifically say. The other takeaway is that hospital protocol is not necessarily what evidence-based or safer. Oh, yeah. It's just what that group of, because hospitals are a business. Yeah. So it's just what that business has decided is the most efficient and- you know, one thing that's interesting, I have to do a shout out for the large hospital corporation here, IHC. They started to see an increase in um, newborn intensive care unit admissions. And so they wanted to know why. And they actually hired a doctor with a background in research to come in and really start looking. And what he found was there were too many inductions too early and doctors were inducing at 37, 38 weeks. And it sounds like it should be normal, but it was too early. And so those babies were going into intensive care. And so as a hospital organization, they said, unless there is a documentable medical reason that you can tell us and show us exactly why this baby should be induced early, there will be no inductions before 39 weeks at the earliest. Does it matter if you need to go on vacation? (laughs) It does now, right? I know, that's what I'm saying. But but it didn't used to, right? And so so what I'm saying is they actually were willing to look at it. They were willing to look at it and say, hey, there's something going on here. This is not this, this doesn't seem right. And what they found was this early induction. And so they stopped it as a hospital policy. So and none of the doctors, changed, they've started doing delayed cord clamping yep, and, be, yep, based and on they've evidence. lowered their C-section rate, right. Trying to give moms more time in labor. Yeah, they have. And I know this is all changed since I, I know I had my last baby. Right? I mean, and out. yeah, it's to me, it's amazing. So I got my nursing degree in 1984. <laughs> so it's when been a really two, long right? time. <laughs> I actually was 19 and I'm 50, almost 55 now. So it's been a little while. <laughs> but, but, but it was, I mean, back in those days and, and it sounds like so weird. Cause I mean, I had a baby when I was 22, but I worked in hospitals where there were no labor and delivery rooms. It was you labor in one, you deliver back in the delivery room, your legs were up in stirrups, you know, all of these things that we think are so antiquated. That's in my working so lifetime. I, say, I think I'm old school. <laughs> I got nothing on you. Yeah, it's, it's in my working lifetime. Right. And I'm not that old. So <laughs> Uh, so we have come a long ways in some ways. And and even though our numbers of home births or out of hospital births, I should say, so home birth and births in our combined in Utah are not that high. It's like two and a half percent, I think. It's more than double what it was when the law passed in 2005. Wow. Yeah. So can you speak to any of the statistics as to if this is safer? Do you know? I mean, I should have researched this before. I didn't think to ask, but the mor- maternal mortality rate of the United States compared to I mean, sorry, the, the, well, both maternal and, and, infant. Fetal, and infant. It's pretty, it, it's, it's almost pretty the worst of any developed dismer. nation. Yeah. I yeah. think it's like in the forties or yeah, something. And, and that's, that's really a tragedy. And, 
if you start to parse that out along racial lines, it's even worse. So black moms in America are at much higher risk of dying in childbirth than white moms. Even if they're wealthy black moms. I know. Like Serena Williams. Yeah, I was going to say, Google the Serena Williams story. and, And so- so there are people who want to look at that. What's interesting to me is I don't see very many people publicly in the United States saying we think midwives could be an answer to this problem. They say it everywhere else in England. Yeah. My right, sister's going to give birth Europe. in Germany and she keeps sending me, I call it hospital porn because yeah. <laughs> the hospitals are so pretty over there. They have birthing yeah. thrones with yeah. like fans and they have yeah, all and, sorts and, of. But, the, but they're midwifery driven, right? They're driven by midwives. And so one of the things that there's always part of the conversation about healthcare is how do you lower healthcare costs? Well, you, you use, um, what people call mid-level providers. So midwives are mid-level providers. We don't do C-sections. We're, we're not the cardiologists of, you know, yeah. the birth world. And, and obstetricians, it's really the only specialization, medical specialization, where they want to do all the normal and all the abnormal at the same time. That's, that's a good point. You it's, don't see a cardiologist until you have something, right, right. You go to and, your family doctor first. Yeah, and you don't have a cardiologist say, oh my gosh, why are you sending me all the heart problems, right? Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of what they're there for. Yeah. And so so you have a little bit of that, but what's interesting is there are places, there are places like, um, there's a midwife in New York, I think, who is, she's a black midwife and she really focuses on um, inner city clients. So low socioeconomic, usually not Caucasian clients and her premature rate and her... Um, maternal health rate, her statistics are excellent, right? She dropped her premature rate to almost nothing. Um, her moms are healthy, her babies are healthy, right? And it's a population where the statistics shouldn't look like that. Yeah. But there's a lot to be said for the, uh, the care that midwives give. And yeah. it's just a different model in the United States, right? Yeah. In Europe, it's uh, the model is usually midwifery based and then doctors if needed, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that you see dual or it's not that it's expected that you see a doctor. A doctor is a specialist that you go to if there's something unusual yeah. about your pregnancy. Yeah, because um, some people in the United States will do um, dual care. Mm-hmm. They'll go, they'll see a doctor their entire pregnancy and they'll see a home birth or a birth center midwife their entire pregnancy. And to me, that's kind of a waste of resources yeah. to pay both providers the entire way, but just so the mom has that. Um, if she were to transfer, yeah. there's somebody who knows. Yep. Yeah, and that's a big deal. Continuity to a lot of care. Of, yeah. yeah. And in, you know, even in the United States, even with good relationships with the medical community, a lot of times what you're doing is you're transferring care. But in Europe, even if a doctor is involved in the delivery, the midwife is still the primary care provider. So even if there's a C-section mm. and the midwife is not doing the C-section, the doctor is, the so midwife is still the, the primary care the, provider. The doctor comes the in as the assistant and the specialist, and then he does That's his thing and then he leaves. completely different way of thinking. Very different model. But yeah, I mean, even you've got, you, you mentioned princesses earlier, right? I mean, <laughs> um, uh, Kate Middleton had her babies in the hospital with midwives mm-hmm. and doulas. And I, as I understand, the royal physicians were outside the birthing room, but they were never allowed in, right? And they mm-hmm. didn't need them. So they yep. didn't use them. <laughs> yep. But they so, were on standby. And that's but it. they were on standby. Yeah. Right, well, I think, but, I just think that if you, if you give a lot of the work to the midwives, the doctors can spend more time with their patients and be more specialized. Well, there's a whole conversation about the United States healthcare system, right? Whether whether that is the most efficient use of resources. And if you've got, if you have health insurance that's demanding you treat a certain number of patients per billable hour, 
mm-hmm. and you have to subdivide it and say, I literally have six minutes per client. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you're being driven by outside forces. Right. Right. Yeah. And there are physicians who've started saying, I'm not going to take insurance. I'm going to go cash only because it's just too much. Yeah. Right. And, <laughs> or things like this is not childbirth, but things uh, like doctors who might follow you for diabetes. If you need to come in and check your blood sugar, do you really have to see the physician or can you have yeah. somebody in the office poke your finger and run a test and tell you this is what it is? Yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, but right now, the way the insurance demands are is you actually have to see the physician. So actually, uh, this brings up a something that I feel soapbox moment here is that the doctors, if they were to stand against the insurance companies and just say, we're not going to do this anymore, just like if moms say, you're not, you're not going to cut me, you're not going to give me a, an episiotomy. If doctors pushed back and said, no, I need more time with my patients, I need then the insurance companies would have to comply, right? Yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> oh, wishful thinking. Um, yeah, I, but also, I mean, in theory. Too, it's, it's changing right, the culture theory. as well. I heard this amazing story the other day about a doctor here who um, baby's, um, baby's heart rate was decelerating. There was something going on in the delivery, but the, um, the big sister really wanted to deliver the baby. And so oh, he cute. actually, he knew things were crashing, that baby was not okay, but he still assisted the nine-year-old in a delivering her baby sister. That's cute. And then he let the nine-year-old cut the cord because the cord had to be cut immediately to transfer to the, the cart. Um, but he did all, and then they moved the baby. Baby went straight to NICU. And it just, it didn't even take extra time yeah. to make that birth experience real for that big sister and the mom and treat her with honor and respect and the baby still got yep and i love that right i mean and to me i mean one of the things i think about midwifery care is i think a lot a lot of the reason even physicians get into it is you want that one-on-one connection, right? Uh-huh. You want to make a difference in somebody's life during a, an important time. And, and sometimes you forget that, um, especially if you're, you, you have a, such a huge client load because you're driven by financial demands mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that, that you, it, it's harder to keep those connections going. But look, I think a lot of doctors get into it because they want that. That's true. Because they want to be part of that process. And then they find out that, you know, the demands of paying off student loans and paying for office staff and overhead. And, and then your hospital has rules and your malpractice insurance has rules mm-hmm. and your hands are tied and you're like, okay, this is what I can do. So this brings up another point is that um, uh, midwives at birth centers and home births generally cannot accept insurance. I think there's one insurance provider that will pr- that will reimburse a home birth, but they won't pay upfront. They'll like it's out actually of, out of network. Kind there's of. Yeah, there's actually a number that will pay, that yeah? will reimburse on home birth. Yeah, and birth center births. Um, Medicaid will not in Utah, but mm-hmm. it does in other states. Well, Medicaid, it's kind of ironic because those that are on Medicaid generally can't afford the home birth right. anyway. So, right. but home birth, um, but maybe if Medicaid paid for it, they would, right? Yeah, and, for sure. And, I mean, it would the, save Medicaid so much money. It would save money. Medicaid Oh my money. gosh, a home birth right. is between 25 yeah. to $4,500. Right. A hospital birth with no, my hospital birth 12 years ago with no complications, zero epidural, $8,500, I yeah. think. And that's on the low side. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. if you have anything. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's, that's not an the argument. baby's bill. The baby's bill for sure. the nursery, <laughs> even though I co-slept and, and yeah. breastfed yeah. on demand, the baby's bill was like 2300 yeah. or something. Yep. 
Yeah. So, so from, you know, if you're looking at cost savings and stuff, it makes sense to do that, but we're not at a point where we can do that at this point. How in Utah, however, Washington and Oregon, I think they both pay for doulas. They both pay for out of hospital births. Um, Medicaid does because it saves them. Somebody finally looked at the bottom line and like, Oh, this makes a lot of sense. Right. <laughs> So and, that's that's our next lobbying project yeah. is to help Medi- get Medicaid to pay. <laughs> to get Medicaid to cover. Uh, yeah, I heard birth. from Medicaid will cover like all of these other things like pap smears or like well woman care, yeah. but they won't cover an actual birth. Yeah. So the midwives are trying to figure out how to... F- yeah, and <laughs> there's lots of arguments about what Medicaid covers and what they don't cover, but... <laughs> so they'll cover Viagra and Rogaine. They won't cover tampons and pads. Oh, we are out of time. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get us started. (laughs) Wow. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. There is so much. But again, like what we've built on the backs of the the granny midwives, I just appreciate all the work that they've done and that you've done. I mean, one of the reasons I'll just say a personal note here. I'm so thankful that you were willing to come to talk to me because I know that all the work I've been doing in the last 10 years is really built on on what you did 10 years before me. And it's just, it's, oh, it's so yummy to see. It's you. been, so next year it will be 20 years since that midwife was arrested. So it's been 19 years since she was arrested and charged and we started down this path. Um, that's a long time. Yeah. Right. It's a long time. 20 years and is a generation. And yeah. And it's been 14 years, almost 15 years since that law passed. And now the legislators on the Hill it's normal to them. They don't want to change it. They don't want to touch it. And they're just like, yep, midwives are good. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been fascinating. (laughs) Please visit us at birthcircle.com. Join our Facebook groups or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.